Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Um, so I told you we were going to talk about Marnie. The interesting thing about Marnie is that it's a story based on a novel that Hitch actually started adapting before The Birds. The project that he was going to do that would reunite him with Grace Kelly. She was very, very interested in playing the role. Um, but that fell through. See, she was, she, Grace Kelly was married to the uh, Prince of Monaco. And, um... There were some things going on in the country. I don't really know everything, but um, she felt that it would be the wrong time to go and make a movie in Hollywood uh, by the time Hitch actually got around to making Marnie. Oh, and he had hired Joseph Stefano, who was the writer of Psycho. Um, but by the time they got back to the project, uh, he was writing and producing a show called The Outer Limits. So he ends up getting a new writer, returns to the project, and casts his new star from the birds, Tippi Hedren. See, Tippi plays the, the title character, Marnie. Uh, she's a thief who is caught uh, when she makes the mistake of robbing a financial firm and then one of their clients. Um, she is found out by the client who has a fascination over her and decides he wants to marry her. However, things get difficult when he finds out she's had some serious trauma in her life and that has scarred her in ways he nor she really realized. So Hitch plays out the effect of Marnie's trauma through a lot of the tools we've discussed earlier, but there's one we haven't really dived into yet that I wanna, wanna talk about, and that is with color. See, when Marnie has these, she has these sort of episodes, and it's achieved through overlaying a red solid that, that pulses, kind of like in a Kill Bill, when when uh, Uma Thurman's character, the bride, you know, sees one of the characters that she's there to kill, um, you know, the, the red pulsing, it's kind of like that. Not really like that. Kind of like that. Uh, the only difference is there's no 70s music in the background. So let's, let's review color real quick because we've kind of talked about it, but not like this. See, Hitch's goal was to limit color. Um, and this goes along the lines with... Um, with saving your tools. We talked about that with Dial In For Murder, this idea that you need to save certain tools because they can have extra impact when you need them. And Hitch understood that color was going to play a very important role in this film, so he saves the tools and he limits the color in this film. But I want to talk about the reasoning behind it. So in 1938, this is before color is really a widely accepted standard uh, in the in the film medium because it was just too expensive. Hitch was already thinking about it. In, in the book Hitchcock Interviews, an interview with Mary Bendetta, he says, and I quote, to my mind, color should, not, should be used not just to give a pictorial effect, but a means of expression. I would like to film London in a fog, London in a rain, a girl who is unhappy, her face is drab and colorless in contrast to the people around her, or a man who is pale and starved to see him have his first meal and flush gradually mount into his cheeks. See, Hitch understood that if you're going to introduce color, that's another element like sound or, uh, or close-ups or long shots or 3D, or whatever it is you want to, whatever tools you want to think about, it's another tool for the tool bag. And you need to save it for when it can really have an impact. He outlines some story examples there that we just talked about. So then, much, much later in 1972, now color is the standard of the industry. Again, in Hitchcock interviews, but this time in an interview with Charles Thomas Samuels, he says, Color should start with the nearest equivalent to black and white. 
Color should be no different from the voice, which starts muted and finally arrives at a scream. In other words, the muted color is black and white, and the screams are every psychedelic color you can think of, starting, of course, with red. Years ago, I answered this question by describing a murder in a park where you'd, pound, you'd pan down to see feet struggling in a flower bed full of white asters. Since it's night, you still haven't gone much beyond black and white. Then you dolly into one petal of the white aster till it fills the whole screen, then suddenly there's a flash of red. So Hitch had this idea that color needs to be as muted as possible and then used as an exclamation point to elicit an emotion out of an audience. Uh, one of the... There's, there's a great example, actually, of something, something very similar to what Hitchcock describes in the movie Django Unchained. Um, there's a close-up of the, the, the flanks of a white horse galloping in slow motion. And the rider is suddenly shot. And the camera... And, and, and you see his feet fall off the horse. And, and, and you see, almost out of frame, the rider... I think hit the ground, if I remember correctly. The camera jibs up to see a big red blood stain across this beautiful white horse. It's it, and that has an emotional impact, not just because it's a beautiful image, but because it's because it's a striking visual. This striking contrast of red against white. There's there's so many great ways to control these beautiful contrasts of images to emphasize a moment or a beat in a story. and But it doesn't work if there's colors all over the place. But if you can emphasize each beat, or if you can limit the color throughout your visual storytelling, then you've done a really good job and can from there introduce color for specific moments. So when asked about Marnie... Um, again, a poorly, tired, a poorly titled interview called Interview with Alfred Hitchcock from Hitchcock on Hitchcock Volume 2. He says, I think all color should start with black and white. In other words, it's like music. You can orchestrate color. I think color is all right so long as you control it. And that's the goal. The goal is to control the color, to control the color palette of the film. Um, and if if you want a really great primer on color there's a book that i've that i've read called called if it's purple someone's gonna die and it's written by a university professor at usc in the film program so for those of you so you know i i think everyone knows what i you know i think everyone knows how big a deal that is to be um professor at usc in the film program and her emphasis, what she is most interested in, is the use of color. And she has studied color. She has studied color in depth with her students and figured out all the different emotional ways color can be used. And there's this really great book, like I said, If It's Purple, Someone's Gonna Die, that helps explain, at least within our cultural understanding, the ways color can be used to communicate emotions. Um, so if you're interested, go pick up that book because it's, it's a fascinating read and, and really helps you understand not just 
what blue communicates, but what a light blue or a warm blue or a cool blue will communicate. So in the movie Marnie, he says there are, uh, well, he doesn't say, but all you have to do is look. There, there's a lot of neutral tones, uh, much like in Rope. There's a lot of, you know, dark navy blues. There's a lot of browns and, and olive greens and, and those sorts of things. Very controlled color palette. And red is saved exclusively for these moments when Marnie's past comes back to haunt her and she has an episode. And it goes beyond just this flashing of red on the screen. That actually is used to underscore red that she's seen in real life. And, but that only works if those reds stand out. And the only way those reds stand out is if you avoid using these, these prototypical reds throughout the story. Um, in addition, I, I, I want to note an example that, again, I didn't have Hitchcock talk about, but it, 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 it almost pulls itself out when you've read these, these, uh, these excerpts. At the beginning of the film, there's a yellow handbag, almost a pastel yellow handbag that Marnie carries. Not, not only are your eyeballs immediately drawn to it because it's, it's in a wide open day. You start on the handbag. Shot starts on the handbag and, and lets Marnie walk out ahead of the, of the dolly shot, her back to the camera. And she's got a, a brown jacket on her. Her hair is black and... Um, and it's shot against this background with almost no real uh, underscoring or underpinnings of color. So that yellow handbag stands out immediately. Not only is everyone's eyes drawn to it, but then he uses that narratively to follow Marnie um, throughout a city. And, and wow, lots of noises going on. Sorry about that. Um, and, uh, you know, right up to her introduction, that yellow handbag becomes our vehicle for following her, this woman of mystery. Now, Marnie, as I said in the description, is a thief. Um, which poses a question. Um, the same question that Peter Bogdanovich actually had in his interview with Hitch. Um, we've referenced that one a few times before. Um, how does one make a thief likable to an audience? Now, that's an interesting idea. And I think it's one that, that everyone who's ever tried to use a um, use any kind of anti-hero before has to ask themselves, how is this character going to be likable? Well, the answer is, the uh, well, Hitch answers that for us. And he says, this comes under the heading of rooting for the evildoer to succeed. Because in all of us, we have that 11th commandment nagging us, thou shalt not be found out. The average person looking at someone doing evil or wrong wants the person to get away with it. There's something that makes them say, look out, look out, they're coming. I think it's the most amazing instinct. Doesn't matter how evil it is, you know. It, it can't go as far as murder. But anything up to that point, the audience can't bear the suspense of, of the person being discovered. Hurry up quick, you're going to be caught, they yell. That is certainly one way of doing it. But it's it's remarkably true. I was just re-watching Dial In For Murder. Uh, with a friend of mine, and and he he was annoyed by the fact that he was rooting for this man who's trying to murder his wife. But it's totally true. There's this innate eleventh commandment in us. Apparently, this is, <laughs> thou shalt not be found out. Um, 
and it works so well dramatically. Um, it, it, it's just true. It's and and, and it's a, again an understanding of how Hitch knew the way audiences think. He really did, and, and I, I'm so glad that he was willing to share that information with us because otherwise I don't know how many other people would have thought of that. But Hitch understood that and was able to communicate it very clearly. On a historical note, I'd like to say that this is the last film Hitch did with any of his great collaborators. Um, his director of photography, Robert Burks, died in a fire not long after this. Bernard Herman and Hitch weren't able to continue working due to some industry changes and due to, um, due to possibly some more personal conflicts. Um, we talked about how Hitch didn't always get along with, well with composers, and Bernard Herman wasn't the most easy person to get along with. Uh, but bigger than that, the the studios were starting to look for ways to add to their coffers and were looking at um, at trying to create marketable movie scores, scores that they knew could sell records. In fact, they had Nat King Cole record some lyrics to the romantic score that Bernard Herrmann uh, wrote, which is a phenomenal score, but um, not a great pop song or not pop song but uh not a great ballad i guess i'm not sure what what the correct terminology for it would be um it it didn't sell well of course Uh, so yeah partially because of some industry changes and partially possibly due to due to the fact that they worked so much um they they just moved on from each other and uh, there were a number of other collaborators of hitches that fell by the wayside uh, around this time, sort of ushering us into the final era of Alfred Hitchcock's career. And, uh, yeah, and that will lead us right into the final two movies we're going to talk about um, with Hitchcock. As I said in the last episode, those will be Frenzy and Family Plot. Um, and, uh, yeah, that'll move us out of uh, this semester, shall we say, of Hitchcock University, our first inaugural semester. And, uh, yeah, I want to thank you for for listening and for all the support you guys have given us um, through this sort of rocky road, as I'm still figuring out some things and and have some uh, better understanding of how to do this, I'm hoping, for our next uh, semester, where we will look into the work of Martin Scorsese, which I'm, I'm very excited about. I've already been been uh preparing to prepare uh that that season as i look at some hopefully some better ways of of my preparation that goes into each and every episode and um each and every class session and uh hopefully we get some some even better content that we have but yes thank you for attending this class session of alfred hitchcock university where you learn filmmaking from the masters um as I've said before, and I'll say it again, uh, you can reach out to me at HitchcockUniversity at gmail.com. That is my email. Also, there's a Facebook page, Hitchcock University, and Twitter, Hitch underscore U, as in university. Uh, as well, please leave a rating, review, like, comment, whatever, at, um, at wherever it is you listen to the show on SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Spot- uh, not Spotify. Um, Google Play, or, uh, of course, iTunes Podcasts. Uh, Thank you again for attending class. Uh, We will hold class again in two weeks.